Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 7 of Mongols and Mamluks called Sultan Baibars. In the last episode we heard how the Mamluks won a truly historic victory at the Battle of Ain Jalud in 1260, defeating the Mongols and saving Islam from destruction. Baghdad, the cultural centre of Islam, had been brutally sacked by the Mongols in 1258 and it had looked as if the Mongols would overrun the whole of Islam, much to the delight of many, but not all Christians. I say not all Christians because most of the Crusaders in the Middle East, or Outremer as it was called at the time, meaning overseas in French, were actually very suspicious of the Mongols. While the great crusading French King Louis IX, who'd led the Seventh Crusade, hoped that the Mongols would become the allies of the Christians against Islam, the native Crusaders were a lot more suspicious of the Mongols, and I think rightly imagined that if they defeated the Muslims, Outremer would just become a Mongol vassal state. For this reason, most of the Crusaders didn't actually join the invading Mongol army. But the main reason why the Mamluks triumphed at Ain Jalud was that most of the Mongol army had been called away because the great Mongol Khan Monka died in 1259, leaving his relatives to squabble over his succession. So the Mongol general Hulagu, who had been entrusted by the great Khan Monka with the destruction of Islam, returned to Central Asia to contest the succession, leaving his general Kitbuka to conquer Egypt. But, of course, as you've heard in the last episode, Kitbuka came up against the Mamluk army in Egypt, which was probably the most formidable fighting machine in the world apart from the Mongols themselves and the West and European knights, and he was defeated and killed, and the Mongol threat was averted. We now join the story at the beginning of another major new development, which was the rise to power of the Mamluks, and in particular, the extraordinary story of the man who would become the new Saladin, the scourge of the Crusaders. This was the Mamluk Sultan Baibars, who you've already heard about as a senior Mamluk general, who was instrumental in the defeat of the Seventh Crusade, as well as the Mamluk victory at Ain Jalud. Baibars has been hailed as the second Saladin, but he didn't have any of Saladin's chivalrous respect and generosity towards the Crusaders, and as you will hear, he embarked on a brutal war to eliminate the Crusaders once and for all. As before, I'll read extracts from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Five days after the Mamluks' decisive victory over the Mongols at the Battle of Ain Jalud, the Sultan Kutuz entered Damascus. The Ayyubite al-Ashraf, who had deserted the Mongol cause, was reinstated in Homs. The Ayyubite emir of Hama, who had fled to Egypt, returned to his emirate. Aleppo was recovered within a month. The Mongol leader Hulagu, angry as he was at the loss of Syria, could do nothing until order was restored in the heart of the Mongol Empire. He sent troops to recover Aleppo in December, but after a fortnight they were forced to retire, having massacred a large number of Muslims in reprisal for the death of his general Kitbuka. But that was all that Hulagu could achieve to avenge his faithful friend. The Egyptian Sultan Kutuz set out on the return journey to Egypt, covered with glory. 
story. But though Kid Booker's prophecy of vengeance was never wholly fulfilled, his taunt of the disloyalty of the Mamluks very soon was justified. Kutuz had grown suspicious of his most active lieutenant, Baibars, and when Baibars demanded to be made governor of Aleppo, the request was brusquely refused. Baibars did not wait long to take action on the 23rd of October 1260 when the victorious Egyptian army reached the edge of the delta. Kutuz took a day's holiday to go hunting hares. He set out with a few of his emirs, including Baibars and some of his friends. As soon as they were well away from the camp, one of them came up as though to make a request of the sultan. And while he firmly held him by the hand as though he was going to kiss it, Baibars rushed up from behind and dug his sword into his master's back. The conspirators then galloped back to the camp and announced the murder. The Sultan's chief of staff, Akhtai, was in the royal tent when they arrived and at once asked which of them had committed the murder. When Baibars admitted that it was he, Akhtai bade him sit on the Sultan's throne and was the first to pay him homage, and all the generals in the army followed his example. It was as Sultan that Baibars returned to Cairo. Rukan Adin Baibars was now approaching his 50th year. He was a Kipchak Turk by birth, a huge man with a brown skin, blue eyes and a loud, resonant voice. When he came first to Syria as a young slave, he was offered for sale to the emir of Hama, who examined him and thought him too coarse a lout. But a Mamluk emir, Bundukdar, noticed him in the market and sensed his intelligence. He was bought for the sultan's Mamluk guard. Thenceforth, forward he had risen rapidly and since his victory over the Franks in 1244 he had been marked as the ablest of the Mamluk soldiers. He now showed that he was a statesman of the highest calibre, unimpeded by any scruple of honour, gratitude or mercy. His first task was to establish himself as sultan. In Egypt he was accepted without demur, but at Damascus another Mamluk emir, Sinjar al-Halabi, seized power. Sinjar was popular in Damascus and the simultaneous attack of the Mongols on Aleppo threatened Baibar's control of Syria. But the Ayubite prince of Homs and Hama defeated the Mongols while Baibars marched on Damascus and routed Sinjar's troops outside the city on the 17th of January 1261. The citizens of Damascus fought on for Sinjar but their resistance was stamped out. Baibars went on to deal with the Ayubites. The prince of Karak was induced by pleasant promises to put himself into the sultan's power and was quietly eliminated. Al-Ashraf of Homs was allowed to return his city until his death in 1263 when it was annexed. It was only at Harma that a branch of the family was able to last on, closely supervised for another three generations. Baibars also wished to give his government a religious sanction. Some Bedouin brought to Cairo a dark-skinned man called Ahmet, whom they declared to be the uncle of the late caliph. Baibars pretended to verify his descent and saluted him as caliph and religious leader of Islam, but deprived him of any material power. Ahmet, who was renamed al-Hakim, was soon sent to recover Baghdad from the Mongols. When he was killed during his attempt, to which Baibars gave very little support, a son of his was raised to the nominal caliphate. This shadowy line of doubtful Abbasids was preserved in Cairo so long as the rule of the Mam 
Mamluks lasted. The Sultan's next task was to punish the Christians who had helped the Mongols. His particular resentment was reserved for King Hetum of Armenia and Prince Bermond of Antioch. In the late autumn of 1261, he sent an army to take control of Aleppo, whose Mamluk governor had been insubordinate, and to carry out extensive raids in Antiochene territory. Further raids were made next summer and the port of St. Simeon near Antioch was sacked. Antioch itself was threatened, but Hetum appealed to the Mongol Hulagu and arrived with a force of Mongols and Armenians in time to save it. The Mongol power in northeast Syria was still strong enough to deter Baibars, so he had recourse to diplomacy. Meanwhile, Hulagu's Mongol rival, the Khan Burka of the Golden Horde, had by now come out openly as a Muslim and was ready to ally himself with Baibars. As for the main body of crusaders based at Acre, they had hoped that their friendliness to the Mamluks at the time of the Ain Jalud campaign would preserve them from hostile attentions. But when John of Jaffa and John of Beirut went to Baibar's camp late in 1261 to attempt to negotiate for the return of crusader prisoners taken during recent years and for the fulfilment of a promise made by Sultan Ibek to restore Zirin in Galilee or else to pay an indemnity for it, Baibars, though he seems to have liked John of Jaffa, refused to listen to them and instead sent all of the prisoners off to labour camps. In February 1263, John of Jaffa paid a second visit to the Sultan, who was then encamped by Mount Tabor, and obtained the promise of a truce and an exchange of prisoners. But neither the temple nor the hospital would then agree to give up the Muslims in their possession, as they were all trained craftsmen and all of material value to the orders. Baibars himself was shocked by such mercenary greed. He broke off negotiations and marched into Crusader territory. After sacking Nazareth and destroying the Church of the Virgin, he made a sudden swoop on Acre itself on the 4th of April 1263. There was severe fighting outside the walls in which the Crusader leader Geoffrey of Sergine was badly wounded, but Baibars was not yet ready to besiege the city. He retired after sacking the suburbs. It was suspected that he had Arranged to have the cooperation of Philip of Montfort and the Genoese from Tyre, but at the last moment their Christian consciences held them back. Raids and counter-raids continued on the frontier. The Crusader towns in the Maritime Plain were constantly threatened. As early as April 1261, Balian of Ibelin, Lord of Arsouf, leased his lordship to the hospital, knowing that he could not afford its defence. Early in 1264, the temple and the hospital consent to unite forces to capture the little fortress of Lison, the ancient Megiddo, and a few months later they made a joint raid down to Ascalon, while in the autumn the French troops, paid for by King Louis IX, penetrated very profitably as far as the suburbs of Bison. But in return, the Muslims so ravaged the Crusader countryside south of Carmel that life was no longer safe there. At the beginning of 1265, Baibar set out from Egypt at the head of a formidable army. The Mongols had shown signs of aggression 
aggression in northern Syria that winter, and his first intention was to counterattack against them. But he learnt that his troops in the north had held the Mongols off. He could therefore use his army to attack the Crusaders in the south. After feigning to amuse himself with a great hunting expedition in the hills behind Arsuf, he suddenly appeared before the town of Caesarea. The town fell at once on the 27th of February, but the citadel held out for a week. The garrison capitulated on the 5th of March and was allowed to go free, but the town and castle alike were razed to the ground. A few days later, Baibar's troops appeared at Haifa. Those of the inhabitants that were warned in time fled to boats in the harbour, abandoning both the town and the citadel, which were both destroyed, and the inhabitants that had remained there were massacred. Baibars himself, meanwhile, attacked the great Templar castle at Athlet. The village outside the walls was burned, but the castle itself resisted him successfully. On the 21st of March, he gave up its siege and marched on Arsuf. The Hospitallers had garrisoned and provisioned it well. There were 270 knights within the castle who fought with superb courage, but the lower town fell on the 26th of April after its walls had been broken down by the Sultan's siege engines, and three days later the commander of the citadel, who had lost a third of his knights, capitulated in return for a promise that the survivors should go free. But Baibars broke his word and took them all into captivity. The loss of the two great fortresses horrified the Crusaders and inspired the Templar troubadour Ricard Bonomel to write a bitter poem complaining that Christ seemed now to be pleased by the humiliation of the Christians. It was next the turn of the city of Acre, but the regent Hugh of Antioch, who had been in Cyprus, had already hurried across the sea with the men that he could raise in the island. When Baibars moved north again from Arsuf, he found that Hugh had landed at Acre on the 25th of April. The Egyptian army therefore returned home after leaving troops to control the newly conquered territory. The frontier now was within sight of Acre itself. Baibars hastened to write news of his victories to Manfred, king of Sicily, with whom the Egyptian court kept up the friendship forged with his father, the German emperor Frederick II. It had been a good year for Baibars. On the 8th of February 1265, Hulagu died in Azerbaijan. His brother Kubilai had given him the title of Ilkhan and the hereditary government of the Mongol possessions in southwestern Asia, and though his difficulties with the Golden Horde and with the Mongols of Turkestan, who also were converts to Islam, had kept him from resuming a serious offensive against the Mamluks, yet he was still formidable enough to deter the Mamluks from attacking his allies. In July 1264, he held his last Kurultai, or Great council at his encampment near Tabriz. His vassals were all present, including King David of Georgia, King Hetum of Armenia, and Prince Bermond of Antioch. Hulagu's unexpected death was bad news for the Crusaders because it inevitably now weakened the Mongols at a critical moment. The influence of Hulagu's widow, Dokuz Katun, secured the succession for his favourite son, Abaga, who was governor of Turkestan. But it was not until June, four months after his father 
father's death that a baga was formally installed as the great Ilkhan, and several more months passed before the redistribution of fiefs and governorships was completed. Doku's Katun herself died during the summer, deeply mourned by the Christians. Meanwhile, a baga was continually threatened by his cousins of the Golden Horde, who actually invaded his territory next spring. It was impossible for the Mongol government to intervene for the time being in western Syria. Baibars, to whose diplomacy the Ilkhan's troubles with his northern neighbours were mainly due, could resume his campaigns against the Crusaders without fear of interference by the Mongols. In the early summer of 1266, while Abaga's armies were occupied in beating off the Khan Burka's invasion of Persia, two Mamluk armies set out from Egypt. One under Baibars himself appeared before Acre on the 1st of June, but the regiment maintained there by the French King Louis IX had recently been reinforced from France, finding the city so strongly garrisoned Baibars turned aside to make a demonstration of power before the Teutonic fortress of Montfort, then marched suddenly on Safed, from whose huge castle the Templars dominated the Galilean uplands. The fortifications had been entirely reconstructed some 25 years before, and the garrison was numerous, though many of the soldiers were native Christians or half-breeds. Baibars' first assault on the 7th of July was beaten back, nor was he more successful with his next attempts on the 13th and 19th of July. He then announced through heralds that he offered a complete truce to any of the native soldiers that would surrender to him. It is doubtful how many of them would have trusted his word, but the Templar knights at once grew suspicious. There were recriminations which came to blows, and the Christian Syrians began to desert the Templars. The Templars soon found it impossible to hold the castle at the end of the month. They sent a Syrian sergeant, whom they believed to be loyal, down to Baibar's camp to offer surrender. The Syrian, whose name was Leo, returned with the promise that the garrison should be allowed to retire without harm to Acre. But when the Templars handed over the castle to Baibar's on these terms, he had them all beheaded. Whether Leo had been a conscious traitor is uncertain, but his prompt conversion to Islam was evidence against him. The capture of Safed gave Baibars control of Galilee. He next attacked Tehran, which fell to him with hardly a struggle. From Tehran, he sent a troop to destroy the Christian village of Quara between Homs and Damascus, which he suspected of being in touch with the Crusaders. The adult inhabitants were massacred and the children enslaved. When the Christians from Acre sent a deputation to ask to be allowed to bury the dead, he roughly refused, saying that if they wished for martyrs' corpses, they would soon find them at home. To carry out his threat, he marched down to the coast and slaughtered every Christian that fell into his hands. But once again, he did not venture to attack Acre itself, where the regent Hugh had just arrived from Cyprus. While Baibars campaigned in Galilee, the second Mamluk army, under the ablest of his emirs Kalawan, assembled at Homs after a lightning raid towards Tripoli, during which he captured the forts of Kalat and Halba and the town of Arca, which controlled the approach to Tripoli from the Bukaya, Kalawan hurried northward to join with the army of Al-Mansur of Hama. Their combined troops then marched to Aleppo and turned westward into Cilicia. King Hetum of Armenia had expected a Mamluk attack. In 1263, on the news of the Mongol Hulagu's death, he had attempted to come to terms with Baibars. He thought this might be possible because the Egyptian 
navy depended for its shipbuilding on wood from southern Anatolia and the Lebanon. Hetum and his son-in-law, Bermond of Antioch, controlled these forests and hoped to use their control as a bargaining point, but the attempted blockade only made Baibars the more determined on war. In the spring of 1266, knowing that a Mameluk attack was imminent, Hetum set out for the court of the Mongol Ilkhan at Tabriz. While he was there pleading for Mongol help, the storm burst. The Armenian army led by Hetum's two sons, Leo and Taurus, waited for the Mamluks by the Syrian gates with the Templars at Bagras guarding its flank. But the Mamluks turned northward to cross the Aminus Mountains. The Armenians hastened to intercept them as they descended into the Cilician Plain. A decisive battle took place on the 24th of August. The Armenians were outnumbered and were routed. Of their two princes, Taurus was slain and Leo taken prisoner. The victorious Mamluks swept through Cilicia. They sacked Ayasadana and Tarsus and they marched on the Armenian capital at Sis, where they plundered the palace, burnt down the cathedral and slaughtered thousands of its inhabitants. At the end of September, the Mamluks returned to Aleppo with nearly 40,000 captives and great caravans of booty. Too late, the Armenian king Hetum hurried back from the Mongol Ilkhan's court with a small company of Mongols to find his heir a captive, his capital in ruins, and his whole country devastated. The Armenian kingdom never recovered from the disaster. It was a bad omen for the Crusaders, for whom a similar fate was now all too likely. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about Sultan Baibars' brutal campaigns to destroy the Crusaders. (laughs) 